Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features Edwina Curry. And firstly, uh, an apology for there not being an episode uh, for the last fortnight since the Michael Heseltine episode. Um, I've had COVID. I'm luckily now fully recovered, um, but was was a physical state uh, and unable to um, uh, do a podcast last week. So um, sorry about that. <laughs> But hopefully you understand. Um, but it's great to be back. And this episode with Edwina Curry is absolutely fantastic. Um, she's as uh, funny and as forthright and as fascinating as, as you would imagine. And it was a real treat and a treat to be back at the Duchess Theatre. The next show is with Neil Kinnock on the 7th of March. I cannot wait. You can get tickets for that and all future shows at mapford.com, uh, including the rescheduled Christmas party on the 11th of April with Rosanna Allen Khan and Jacob Rees-Mogg. There are some guests I'm on the verge of being able to announce that I'm, I can't wait. So check my Twitter feed at Matt Ford and check the website mattford.com because some guests for some future shows are on the verge of being confirmed and they are sensational. So you can get tickets for all future shows there. And for my tour, Clans to the Left, Jokers to the Right, which has now started, um, obviously I had to rearrange a couple of dates, um, a, f- a few at the Soho Theatre, uh, one at Exeter and one at Gloucester, um, because I had COVID. Um, but it started at the weekend in, in London at the South Bank and at uh, Sheffield at the Leadmill. So thank you so much to all the people who came to those shows. They were brilliant. You were wonderful audiences. And the audiences, uh, well, I'll come on to this in a second, but the audience... At the Duchess Theatre during this recording. What the funniest audiences? I don't. There was something in the air during the recording of this that I'm, I'm sure is palpable. Listening back to it, um, but there we are. Uh, but thank you for coming. And I'm on tour um, for the rest of you know these these next few months. Um, next up, I'm going to Swindon, then um, Southend, and Chorley, Salford. A lot of these, some of them have already sold out. I've added extra shows in Edinburgh and Brighton, and a lot of them are thankfully very close to selling out as well so thank you to those of you who've already bought tickets but i'm all over the country in uh i always forget now crikey norwich and um canterbury and cambridge and nottingham nottingham the glee club i cannot wait i've not played nottingham for years um so i can't wait to be uh, coming home to gig in nottingham i'm doing the bloomsbury theater in london uh, if you missed any of the london dates so far um and you can get tickets for all those at mattford.com i shall stop the hard sell as i was saying there's something in the air during this recording and it's not just because uh, edwina curry brings her own very special uh, atmosphere but you can hear it i think um in, in the audience during this uh first section some topical comedy and what a week for news uh began Dealing with the fact um, that, uh, well, according to the Prime Minister, uh, the war against COVID, at least, uh, has basically been won. 
Uh, England is now going to be the first country in the world to exit COVID restrictions. Uh, Boris Johnson is announcing, as we, uh, you know, as we, as we meet tonight, he's live on TV, and he said, uh, we are now ending the legal uh, requirement to self-isolate if you test positive, and we implore people to rely on their personal responsibility. Which feels like, I mean, it's a setup without a punchline on the end of it, isn't it? Like, being told by Boris Johnson to rely on your personal responsibility. So. Not being told to look after your elders by Harold Shipman. Um, of course, he faces, if found guilty, a fixed penalty notice. And apparently we will be told if he receives a fixed penalty. I mean, I don't think it's strong enough. This guy was breaking the law during the first lockdown, before, before vaccines. People were dying as a result of behaviour like this. I don't think if it, I wanted to see him go to prison. I mean, I would, I would love to see Boris Johnson. <laughs> Imagine his first night in Belmarsh. Oh, here he is, Prime Minister. How the, how the mighty have fallen. Turn out your pockets, you're my bitch now. Oh, well, no, that's just typical of the Honourable Member opposite. No mention of the vaccine. All right, levelling up agenda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or Pepper Pig. I fucking hate pigs, mate. I fucking hate pigs. Time to go to the shower, Boris. It's time for your initiation. Ah, oh, well, I've fell in What an honour to you. What an honour. What an honour to meet you. Oh, well, what house? What house were you in? I was in hundreds of houses, mate. That's what got me in it. <laughs> Keir Starmer's going to have to go to Belmarsh and do Prime Minister's questions on the other side of the glass on one of those phones. <laughs> Can the Prime Minister list his engagements for the day? Well, I, I had meetings this morning with Stokes on D-Wing about how to make a shank out of a toothbrush and some razor blades in addition to my duties in the laundry room. I'll have further such meetings later today. How did the Prime Minister get that bruise? Uh, well, look, uh, it, was, it was nothing. Uh, it was a simple misunderstanding. Like, I'd had a bit of Stokesy Spice and I, I tried to fuck one of the prison wardens. Uh, it was totally normal behaviour. Imagine him in there. Imagine, I mean, you could remake some great prison films. I'll never forget the first time I saw Alexander de Feffel, Boris Johnson. <laughs> Why a drink of water? More like a milkshake. <laughs> hey, hey, fellas, come into, my, come into my cell. Look what I've got behind that poster of Rita Hayworth. Look what it is. Look, another poster of Nadine Dorries. <laughs> <laughs> Nadine Dorries, by the way, who, of course, defends Boris Johnson no matter what. Canada. She gave an amazing interview to CNN. And she said, I probably, she said, if he kicked a dog, I probably would call on him to resign. <laughs> the word probably really leaps out of <laughs> What sort of caveats on this poor dog's welfare? That is probably the level that Prime Minister's Questions is going to get to. Can the Prime Minister confirm whether he has ever kicked a dog? <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's, uh, that, that is pretty rich, coming from the man who failed to prosecute the cat bin lady. <laughs> Yes. Ian Blackford there going, oh, the people of Scotland would never put a cat in a bin. <laughs> Only in England, Mr. Speaker, the people put cats in bins and the bins cannot come soon enough. <laughs> Piers Corbyn and all these nutters outside, oh, the cat bin ladies, part of the Illuminati, yeah. <laughs> the cat was the first vaccine, that was patient zero. <laughs> How the fuck has Piers Corbyn not had COVID? He even looks like it. Keir Starmer was at the middle of another storm, um, but apparently, and this is so weird, laughing when he said the word Coventry. 
Now, this sounds like a fuss over nothing. Now, there was a dispute in Coventry, right? There's an industrial dispute in Coventry, and like every Labour leader, they get sucked into these things. And there's a video of him being interviewed, I think, on local telly, and he says, cannot have an industrial dispute in Coventry affecting Labour's relationship with the trade unions. And it's the way he says Coventry. He does sort of appear to laugh as he says it. Now, the problem is, people in Coventry are not happy about this. There's a local Tory council that said, oh yeah, the liberal London elite laughing as they say Coventry. And then he's tweeted, the more I watch this, the more offended I get. Well, firstly, stop watching it. Why do you keep willfully watching something that is pissing you off? Sorry, council said, Keir Starmer needs just, just apologise now. And you're like, you can't seriously. Firstly, when you've got a Prime Minister who hasn't apologised for breaking the law, have a leader of the opposition go, I just want to make a statement. I want to apologise for the way I said the word Coventry. From now on, I will only say it like this, Coventry. <laughs> Now, there may be exceptional circumstances in the future where I do say it differently. If one of my children goes out on a night out in Newcastle and they end up in Coventry, I might say, Coventry. <laughs> I promise to never laugh. I mean, how do you never laugh? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a phenomenal guest uh, in our second half. It's the first time she's done one of the live shows. I've interviewed her before, and she's one of the most funniest, charming, outspoken, outrageous people I've ever interviewed. When I was growing up, she was one of the most iconic politicians of the Thatcher and Major era. She's continued to be great value since leaving Parliament. Please give a huge welcome to Edwina Curry. <laughs> Edwina, I've got you a, a, a Diet Coke and a, and a glass. Thank you very much. Am, am I talking Scouse tonight? Well, it's up to you. You said nobody talks Scouse like that anymore. Yes, we do. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That, that when you were growing up, Scousers had lovely, deep accents. Like that. If you listen to uh, Penny Lane, yeah. you can hear Paul saying, um, the banker does another customer. And yeah. we, that's how we used to talk. And we used to be down there. I can remember my mum saying on the phone to me once, I don't have an accent. Yes, you do, Mum. <laughs> I don't. I talk, I talk just proper like everybody else. I can't open it. Do right. you? <laughs> so, were you, were you quite an argumentative child? Yes. <laughs> I was known as Awkward Emma. Awkward Emma. Well, because I'm a natural contrarian, you know, and whatever I was supposed to be doing, I did exactly the opposite. So like everybody else was getting pregnant at 15. Oh, no, I wasn't going to do that, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, uh, it, was, it was an interesting life as a kid, yeah. Was I difficult? <laughs> Henry, was I difficult? That's a little. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brother, Henry, at the back. <laughs> My and what, what's, your, what's your dynamic like with your brother? <laughs> <laughs> He's bigger than me, so I'll say perfect. <laughs> No, he's great. He, it, it's a great joy to see him. Whenever I come down to London, because I live up in the Peak District now, yeah. but whenever I come down to London, there are several people I try and make a point of seeing. One is my daughter and my granddaughter, and I failed in that this weekend because they both tested positive for COVID. Oh. Oh. Um, <laughs> and my brother as well, and he hasn't... Well, I think you've had COVID, haven't you? No, I've been 
<laughs> but not when I've been around, thank goodness. So, no, it's always good to see oh, you. No, we're very close. Have you had COVID? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope your daughter and your granddaughter are okay. Yeah, they've got, they've got the sniffles, oh, which yeah. is rather sad, you know, a little three-year-old with the sniffles going, oh, mummy. And, <laughs> and how do they feel about England being the first country in the world to ditch all COVID restrictions? It's not a conversation we've had at the moment, <laughs> I have to confess. It's a fair point, yeah. Um, how do you feel about it? Do you think uh, it's the right thing to do, or does it feel politically uh, uh, premature? Can I just touch your head for a minute? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> touch wood. <laughs> Touch wood, we've done the right thing. <laughs> yes. Touch wood, we've done the right thing. Uh, and we won't know for a, for a while. But um, my, you know, as a former Minister of Health, yeah. uh, my instinct is that we've actually called this one right. Because most people apparently have had COVID at some stage. And um, most people have been vaccinated. We've got, what, 91% of the population have had the first, first dose, dose yeah. and 85% um, have had the second. And all my generation, all we older, wiser souls, yes. we ha it's your generation that have been a bit sort of lax. You know? it's, it's nice to be called young for once, actually, so thank you. Oh, I know how to flatter you. Know. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I think my generation has been quite good, have they? I'm 39. You're young. Yeah. I've got grandchildren about your age. Really? <laughs> but that's okay. Well, no, I, I've got step-grandchildren, because my husband, who died a year or so ago, uh, was older than me, and he was married for the first time when he was 21 and produced some children. Produced? <laughs> I, I did ask him once, because I was the third one that came along, and um, I did ask him once, what I didn't exactly say what did you see in your first wife, but I mean that was the, the implication. You know. <laughs> um, I just said, why did you marry? And he said, look, you've got to realise, back in those days, back in the late 50s, early 60s, oh, wow. excuse me, the more delicate ones, um, if you wanted a shag, you had to get married. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he did. Yeah. And they had two <laughs> wonderful boys who are now my... Touching sixty grand oh stepsons, and they've got sons and a daughter, and they've got grandsons, and so I'm a, I'm a step great grandma, which means you're young. Yes. Okay. Well, that's I'll settle for that. Um, so that that sort of rule that you should only um, uh, you know get married if you want to shag. I mean, do you think do you think the current prime minister agrees to that? <laughs> I don't think my generation agrees with it either. There's a big difference. Something happened in the 1960s. Well, Philip Larkin said, I didn't realise I was going to get into these subjects tonight. I thought we were going to be talking politics. Um, uh, but Philip Larkin said that sex started in 1963, didn't he? He was right. <laughs> so, uh, what, okay, so for you, 1963 was, was, a, was a good year? Not Quite. 1963 was the year before my A-level, so I had to concentrate hard and <laughs> work hard and, and, and um, try and do something really wild, like going to university. Because hardly anybody did then. And most of the ones who did were boys. And hardly any girls went to uni. And it was really, you know, people ask me about when you got to Parliament, and there were 656 members of parliament, and there were only 23 women. 
what did that feel like? And I said, that felt like Oxford 20 <laughs> years earlier. <laughs> yeah, because there were hardly any women there. And uh, you had to get used to um, holding your own, not fighting them off. <laughs> That's not been my forte all my life, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but um, you're holding your own and sitting in the front row and asking a question and that kind of thing. So all the women who are here, do not let the men ask the first question. Is that clear? Yes. 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 Good. Okay. Span out there. <laughs> Is that clear? Some bloke went, yes. <laughs> Read the room, mate. Um, so, um, you, you go to university as a young woman from Liverpool, mm -hmm. against the norm. I mean, a lot of people, when they think of Liverpool and its politics, would presume that that would give you a left-wing background, mm -hmm. thinking of the character of Liverpool and the history of Liverpool. Is that just a generational thing, because people think of really the politics of the 80s onwards? Or is this part of your contrarian attitude? Were your family more left-leaning and you rebelled against it? Uh, my dad had been uh, strong Labour, and um, I think he'd actually been interested in possibly getting involved at some stage. But even in 1945, which was the first big Labour uh, election success, uh, you were very unusual indeed if you came from the working class and you, and you got elected. It, a few did. Bessie Braddock did. I grew up in an atmosphere in a city where there was a woman MP on the front pages of the paper all the time. She, nobody's ever heard of her these days. She was that shape. She was like Michelin Man, right? And her name was Bessie Braddock. She always signed it herself Mrs. Elizabeth M. Braddock. Yes. Um, and she was quite a character. Uh, her family were part of the reason why the Labour Party in Britain was never communist. Because her mother had been met, met Lenin and met all the people over in 1922 and came back and said, well, it's just like Scotty Road in Liverpool, you know, we're not having any of that. <laughs> and uh, so the whole Braddock family became the heart <laughs> of the Labour Party that we know and love, as it were. But I knew that a woman could be an MP. That was fine. It was, uh, that was okay. And um, I, the, the, to some extent, it's being contrary. But actually, as I was growing up, Liverpool had 12 constituencies, of which nine were conservative. Uh, and cabinet ministers represent, conservative cabinet ministers represented Toxteth and was the postmaster general in the Conservative government, which seems bizarre now, but that's how it, that's how it was. Um, but it was many years, long after Matt, before I realised I grew up in a city that had been traumatised by the war, because it been flattened. And my grandfather had died in the Liverpool Blitz in May of 1941. The house was flattened and, and so on. And um, most of my dad's family then went off to America. And the community that I grew up in, which was the Orthodox Jewish community, the Ashkenazi community, was also totally traumatised. And nobody talked about the Holocaust or the six million people who had been vaporised in Europe. Occasionally you'd hear the adults talking in whispers and somebody would say, no, new, no good news comes out of Germany. Yeah? There might be a, a, somebody playing bridge with my dad who would pull the sleeve down quickly because there were... And they, they, the, the victims carried the shame. They felt ashamed that they had survived. And it's not till long afterwards you realise that what you've picked up from that is politics, governments can be a bad thing, 
Don't believe everything the man up there tells you. Think about your neighbours and your community. Uh, trust the people you know. and Don't trust the ones you don't know. And it becomes something that feeds into you. Plus, if you really want to make something of yourself, you have to leave, you have to go, you have to head upwards, and then you have to work hard and see how far you can get. That's aspiration. And I was getting that from the Tories and not from the Labour Party. The Labour people were all trade unionists and they were closing things and there were lots of strikes and there were lots of, you'll do what we say and everybody round here believes this. And I'm thinking, no, I don't. So that all comes together as a kind of, and uh, which political party do you think you might support? Conservative. What? <laughs> and I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> because it is, you know, Liverpool has this radical tradition and the Jewish community, until recently, had always been very strongly Labour, basically until Corbyn. I can only imagine what the Jewish community in, in Liverpool was like. Mm. Were your family shocked when you joined the Tory party? I'm not sure at what point I told them, actually. <laughs> they must know by now. Henry? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. We've got some news, mate. <laughs> it didn't work like that. I wasn't actively involved in politics so much as making a go of being a student, being a scout. I should tell <laughs> you that... I, look, you, you've got to understand this, right? This is how I managed to get into university, right? So um, I was encouraged to apply the year before and do a bit of practice. So when it comes to it, and I've got my A-levels, and I've got my grades, and they're not brilliant. They're okay, but they're not brilliant. And I'm applying, and I get a, come on, from Newnham College, Cambridge. Yeah. And then New Hall, which is the new one, asked me to go for an interview. Yeah. And while I'm there, the phone goes, and it's my mum. How are you getting on? Oh, okay, Mum, you're right. Well, we just heard from Oxford, from St. Anne's. They want you to come for interview. But you don't have to, now you... I said, well, no, I can claim a travel warrant from Liverpool City Council. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? <laughs> and I can stay overnight in Oxford, and I can go and have a look at Oxford as well. Never been there in my life. And I arrive there, and these lovely, lovely ladies, the Dons, are all... I heard your accents earlier. You do it very well. Let me see if I can do it. They're all terribly Oxford. Terribly Oxford. <laughs> and they look at me and they say, and what did you do in half term? Standard question. And all the other girls had said things like, um, oh, I was swatting for my A-levels, or I went skiing or something. And I said, I led a demo. <laughs> <laughs> you, what? I led a demo, a demonstration. Because city council's planning to close our school, like, and we, we had got up a petition about it, and... We got the streets closed and, and the police escort and all that. We led a demo. We took the petition from school down to the town. What we did? And there's total silence. And one of the dons goes slightly green <laughs> and says, you weren't, you, you weren't planning to do anything like that <laughs> if you come here. Well, and I said, well, depends you know, how you behave, really, doesn't it? And then the principal was a doll, and she leans over and she says, if we offer you a, a place, would you come to St Anne's? And I said, I've got John Lennon on my shoulder. <laughs> and I said, this is absolutely true. Well, I've got places here, and I've got places there. 
So it wouldn't be much cop, really, would it? You know. <laughs> and another don goes green. <laughs> and then the principal says, what would induce you to come to Sudan? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, if you offered me a scholarship or something, I mean, it'd be in the Liverpool Echo, wouldn't it? I'd have to do that. I get home, the phone's ringing, and they did. Oh, my God! That is so cool. But to have, to have that, the nerves... I'm shaking as I remember. Do, yeah. Because it, it, you don't, you, you're just saying, to, you think to yourself, I've got nothing to lose. I've got nothing whatever to lose. Let's push this a little bit further. It's like Beecher's Brook in, 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 in the Grand National at Aintree, where they keep taking the fences down a bit to make it easier for the horses to get over. What you do sometimes, just occasionally, somebody helps you to lift that fence up a bit so you can get over it when others can't. And I don't know where in God's name it comes from, that, but just occasionally I've had that opportunity. But to be a working-class girl from Liverpool... To be 17, 18 years old, sitting in this elitist institution with people who, they might not be trying to intimidate you, but other people would be intimidated by that, and to not be intimidated by that, and to have the character and the wit to, to give those answers. But part of your head is saying to you, this is who I am. But have you figured out... And if you out? lot don't like that, if you, don't, if you can't get your heads around that, then I don't want to be here. But have you figured that out so young? I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. So then, obviously, your, your student experience. At that point, would you describe yourself as political? Obviously, you're doing demos and things. You know that you're, you've probably got a sense of right and wrong, and you're the sort of person who stands up and says something. Mm. But at that point, did you think, I'm right-wing, or I'm left-wing, or I'm a Tory, or I'm Labour? I'm working my way towards what's quite a long-term philosophy of life, something that's going to... Uh, it's going to survive for a while. And I suppose I had in the back of my mind that uh, we, we had a very famous woman judge in Liverpool called Rose Heelbrun. And in fact, her daughter, Hilary, was at Oxford at the same time as I was. So there was always in my mind, you can be things. You, you don't have to learn how to make cookies. Uh, you can do other things. You can have a career. And it if you can get enough doors open wide, you have a lot of choice. And you can try different things and see what, what you like and what you don't like. I mean, I actually tried being a chemist for a while. And I was hopeless. I broke everything in the lab. <laughs> and when I went and talked to the principal about that, she said, well, what do you do in your spare time? I said, well, I go to politics lectures. I go to hear Dr. David Butler talking about how they put opinion polls together, which is new science. And she said, it's a postgraduate college. You've only been here a term. I said, well, it's interesting. I've got the maths. I can do it. She said, well, you can do PPE. I'd never heard of PPE. <laughs> and then that's another door open. But then when you graduate, you think, I've got to earn a living. I have no money. None. My family can't help. How am I going to earn a living? What am I good at? Well, I like economics and numbers. Somebody said, train as an accountant. So I start training as an accountant. And then I look at my team leader. And he's gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> so we had an accountant in the family, but it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> so 
if we start to become political at university, at what point do you think, right, I'm going to stand for Parliament? I think by the time I finished at uni, I knew if the opportunity presented itself and the time was right, then I would have a go. Uh, that's because I'd met lots of MPs. A lot of the people I was at uni with had parents, fathers who were MPs, fathers or grandfathers or uncles who were MPs. Uh, and I can remember uh, Douglas Hogg, for example, was the president of the Oxford Union. And his father, Quinton Hogg, Lord Hailsham, came and was a speaker. And I was sat next to him at a dinner. And I pinched his arm. He said, what are you doing? <laughs> and I said, I've never sat next to an MP before. I'm trying to find out if you're real. <laughs> I'm ashamed of myself now. What a terrible thing to do. Poor man. Um, but I was intrigued. And so many of them, all the Etonians and so on, uh, they assumed that they were going to be MPs. They were going to sail into it. Um, what put paid to a lot of that was actually Margaret Thatcher. And uh, Julian Critchley put his finger on it because he said when Margaret arrived, out went the Knights of the Shires and the military medals, and in came the used car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> and the estate agent, since it. And what that meant was that the old snobbery was under big challenge. So I had this argument with Nick Soames uh, uh, in the tea room in the House of Commons one day, and I said, um, you, you know, you, you found it so much easier to get here with your background, and Churchill was your grandfather and all that kind of thing. And he said, how many seats did you try for, Edwina, before you came to the House? You know, how many seats did you stand in before you came here? And I said, well, I got elected first time. <laughs> and he said, you didn't have to prove yourself, he said. I did. And he'd had to try and stand in um, losing seats in order to show that he was a genuine char character and candidate. Um, what I was able to follow it up with was, uh, yeah, but you didn't have to apply to 21 seats to get one, did you? So that's how privilege works, do you see? That's how privilege and prejudice work. But when a lot of people rail against privilege, they do it from a kind of left-wing perspective. So h how is it to be a Conservative and to rail against privilege? Well, it's to be a fan of Margaret Thatcher, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, Margaret was amazing. And she knew exactly all the things that I've mentioned. There were a lot of parallels. Uh, uh, our dad had a, a shop in the centre of town. Her dad had a shop in the centre of town and was well known. He was an alderman on the local council. Um, she was one of two children. She was, uh, the, the, she was the one who was given the opportunities and the, and the push and the nudge uh, to, to, to get cracking. And um, she married a guy who was prepared to support her and she had two young children. Because she wanted to have a shag. Um, yeah. <laughs> He was a millionaire. He had something else going for him. <laughs> Apparently, he used to take her, ho take her home when she stood in the, I think it was Dartford constituency in Kent, when she was very young, just after she graduated. And he used to take her home in his um, Bentley or Rolls Royce, as if he wasn't trying to impress her, you know? <laughs> and she, was much, she was a bit young. Anyway, but she knew all about the sneers and the, the, um, the kind of dismissing the little woman thing. And that's how she won the leadership. 
because when Ted Heath had made a rather a mess of things, a bit like Theresa May, this is all ancient history for those of you who are <laughs> younger than me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Prime Minister Ted Heath had made a mess of things and he had lost an election and he lost another election and the party decided that was it. In 1975, there's a leadership contest and she decides to have a go. And nobody gave her a chance. But one of her supporters, Erin Eve, went round saying, we don't want the little lady humiliated. Perhaps I could ask you to support her. <laughs> oh, very good, thank you, that's 22. <laughs> and she won it. She romped home with everyone saying, well, yeah, can't possibly be. Well, how, how, how can we have a woman as the leader of the Conservative Party? Oh my goodness me. Oh, but she should never make Prime Minister. And then she made Prime Minister. And then it was, well, she's not terribly good, is she? And, and the Falklands? Oh, no, no, we're not going to send troops into the Falklands. Oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And Margaret goes, in they go. Bodicea on a chariot. <laughs> I, stood for, I stood for my first public office as we were in the Falklands in um, the 1975, no, no, I stood, that was a different one. But in 1975, I got elected in Birmingham City Council and we had an election in 1982. And I'm on the doorsteps as the Falklands is happening. And it was like we had extra canvases on every doorstep with people saying, oh, that Mrs. Thatcher, oh yeah, I vote for her. I like her, you like her? Oh, yes, I do. I'm going to vote for it. So we won the council. I got chosen to fight a coal mining seat. I got elected with a majority of 8,000. It was, a, you know, kind of repeated what's been happening recently. And it was because she defied all the assumptions, all the conventions, and was able to triumph. And I'm thinking, oh, I'll have a bit of that. That's all right. That's me. And what was she like with you? Because some... Uh, Michael Heseltine was on the show a fortnight ago, and obviously uh, different members of Parliament and different ministers at the time had a very different relationship with her. Um, did she encourage you? Did she see, you know, as you saw a bit of yourself in her, did, did she see a bit of you in her as well? Oh, that would be nice to think, wouldn't it? And yet, like lots of people in senior positions, there, there, were, there were things missing. So she was in office for 11 years. Nobody's matched that in recent, uh, in recent times. Tony Blair tried. Oh. Gordon Brown sorted that out, mm -hmm. didn't he? Um, Not a day goes by. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I came into, into the House of Commons the same year, 1983, as Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, and Jeremy Corbyn. What a hell of a year, eh? Oh my God, three Labour leaders in the same intake? Yep. Two yep. who went on to become prime minister. That was yep. a, that's a great pub quiz question. Who else was in that? Who else was in that intake? There were 158 new MPs that year. And in fact, the first the first time I had uh, was able to have a conversation with Margaret while she was, after, uh, as I became a new MP, was what she used to do in order to get to know the new MPs was have us all in, in batches, for tea, um, and she poured the tea and hand round the biscuits. And uh, on, on this particular occasion, I'm sitting next to um, the MP for Wantage, uh, Robert Jackson, 
who was still a member of the European Parliament, and uh, well, she's going around. And I've been warned, make sure you have something to talk about, because the one thing she does not like is if you just, she asks you a question and you go, uh, right? <laughs> so I'm ready. So she comes to Robert before me and she says, well now, Robert, how are we getting on in the European Council and Parliament and whatever? Getting back our money. And he says to her, it's not our money, Prime Minister. And she said, what? It, it's not actually our money. And she went, not our money? Not our money? <laughs> and she proceeded to eat him and spit him out in a little bit. And I'm, oh, we're all sitting there shaking. We're brand new MPs. And we're, you know, we're with, the, we're with the goddess, as it were. And she turns to me and she says, now, how are you getting on, Edwina? And I was ready with my subject. And I said, well, one of the problems with, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're really struggling with office space because one of the problems of so many Labour MPs, they haven't left. Their stuff's still in the office. And we're all camping out in the corridors. And she said, where are you? I said, well, I'm down in the cloisters. There's 12 of us. Oh, have you got a desk? Oh, yes, I've found a desk. And, and have you got a secretary? I brought one down from Derbyshire. Have you got a telephone? Uh, yes, we've got one in. <laughs> have you got a filing cabinet? <laughs> yes, province, I've got two. Well, she said, you've only been here six weeks. I shouldn't complain if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> so the, <coughs> the point... <laughs> oh, <laughs> what happens when you get older is you lose your thread. So the point I was going to make was that she was in office for 11 years. And in all that time, she did not have a woman secretary of state. She only had one woman ever in the cabinet, and that was her old friend Janet Young, who she put into the House of Lords, and who was the leader of the House of Lords for one year. But nobody from the Commons was ever that high up. And why? God knows. Now, we used to just assume it would be when we've got more experience. And it never happened. It Do you think she likes being the only woman? There are advantages in being the only woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, some, what something, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Because people, what's odd is, obviously, a lot of people would say Thatcher is not a feminist. But the Tory party has had two female leaders, both of whom have been prime minister. Labour has never elected a female leader. So there's a kind of weird relationship with gender in British politics. Would you call yourself a feminist, or would you say Margaret Thatcher was a feminist? I've always said I'm, I'm not a feminist, and there's a very specific reason why. Because I hate dividing the world up into us and them. I really hate it. I think that kind of division has been at the root of so much evil. Uh, as mo the moment you start to say us and them, you're into Nazis and Jews. You're into homophobia. You're into Islamophobia. You're into identifying people by what they look like or their gender or their opinions. And I've always hated that. And when the moment you start to have that kind of world, you have discrimination, you have cruelty, you have wrongdoing. And the, the, the most successful form of society is one in which everybody is enabled to do as much as they can. And everybody's encouraged to do whatever they can for society. That's kind of Marxist. That's what Marx, not the Marxists, but that's what Karl Marx said, right? You know, from everyone, from... Each according to his 
Let's see if we can get it right. <laughs> to, to everyone according to his needs, yeah. from everyone according to their abilities. Yeah. And that's, that's lovely because it doesn't discriminate. And in a well, world it does because it only says his, it doesn't say hers. Yes. You noticed. <laughs> but what's odd is, if you're against discrimination, it's very hard not to conclude that women are discriminated against, certainly were in your time and certainly are still now. So then, if you're against discrimination, wouldn't that make you a feminist? Well, the, the, the practicalities of it as well are, um, the moment you start to paint yourself, I'll just choose me, the moment you start to paint yourself as a victim and you start to think about how to change that kind of victimhood, um, you're, you're almost getting distracted. I, would, I always felt that if I started to get involved in that kind of debate and argument, oh, we women, we're so discriminated against, we need to campaign to change the law, then I was going to be distracted from what I was trying to do. I mean, there's, a, there's a reason why we had only less than two dozen women in Parliament in 1983. There were 13 Tories, 10 Labour women. And yet there were lots and lots of people on the left, left side of the debate that were busy campaigning to change the law. And I used to go to these events, and they'd say, we should have 300 women members of parliament. I said, fine, hands up all the ones who are going to stand. <laughs> and some hands would go up, and then I'd say, fine, hands up all those of you that have got yourself a safe seat. And there would be none. So it's, there are different ways to succeed. And sometimes one of the ways to succeed is to trample the grass down a bit so it's easier for the next lot to come through. But in a way, it sounds like you are a feminist, you just don't like the word. <laughs> it's also because I've spent a lot of my time fighting other kinds of prejudice, and um, including the horrible rise of anti-Semitism uh, in recent years. I'm appalled at it. But equally, the Islamophobia. When... <laughs> And you fight it in small ways as well as big ways. When 9-11 happened, which was a Tuesday... Uh, I think that's the thing most people remember about. <laughs> my my, my uh, second husband, John, can't collect them a bit. Um, my husband, John, had been uh, a Met detective for many years, and he was then a counsellor in Reigate and Banstead. And... We got everybody organised, and on the Friday, we all went to prayers in the mosque. All of us. And it was an act of solidarity with the Muslim community in that area. And it just felt like absolutely the right thing to do, because that kind of event can generate such hatred, and it, it tars everybody with that brush. So why wouldn't I get involved in being a feminist? Because I spend a lot of time trying to uh, remove discrimination from other people. I think you were going to ask me what I got up to with Neil Kinnock, gay men and rock cakes. <laughs> well, I, I'll come on to that. I mean, there, there oh, are well, other... Oh, that's later, later on, is it? There, there, there are other sort of male leaders of parties I was tempted to ask. More <laughs> 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 Neil Kinnock's opponent that I was going to come on to. <laughs> Um, Am I wrecking your, your, your train of thought? I do apologise. Well, on, on, on an unrelated topic, let's talk about Boris Johnson. Um, I knew his father. How well? <laughs> <laughs> um, well enough to have an argument with. 
Oh, okay. What was the argument about? I can't remember now. <laughs> <laughs> I think we got distracted talking about other things. Um, here's, do you know there are, there are parallels between Boris and there, there are all sorts of parallels. There's a key parallel between Boris and Trump. If you read a biography of each of them, what you can see is they both had very strong fathers, very dominant fathers, quite aggressive, maybe even violent, and w weak mothers in the sense that they, they, they were ill or they weren't able to stand up to the dad, and they certainly didn't stand up to the dad in terms of protecting the children. And in both cases, it looks as if the kids basically brought themselves up. And when you do that, you're trying very hard to please, but you learn how to do it. You learn how to tell fibs, you learn how to tell lies, you learn how to, uh, but you also learn how to work an audience and how to get everybody um, doing things your way. And both Trump and Boris have, I, I think, had that in common in their backgrounds. And if, if it turns out that Boris Johnson has broken the law, do you think he should resign? No, I don't. I don't. I mean, it, it, surely if he was a Labour Prime Minister, you'd, you'd think they should. Of course I would. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's, it, nobody's ever won a lot of money by betting that Boris Johnson is not going to win an election or win uh, when it comes to dealing with the public. All right? Um, he's been Labour, uh, the Lord Mayor of, not Lord Mayor, he's been Mayor of London twice. Against the odds, yeah? Um, he won the leadership. He won a general election in December 19, which now seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? And again, all against the odds, all against the I odds, all against I mean, the equally. odds. He's very good at what he does. Well, well yeah, exactly, yeah. And, um, I missed that. What was that? Lying. He's very good at other things as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're the things he lies about. Um, so. But, but, this, but this is part of the point, yeah. because, you know, we had a saint as Prime Minister. For three years, we had Theresa May. I was really pleased that when uh, Theresa May uh, won the... Well, she, nobody stood against her in the end, did they? Um, I was really excited. I was uh, working in uh, South Africa with a, a, another lady who's a good friend, and we got a bottle of South African champagne and we got very drunk toasting our health. And I was thrilled to bits, all right? But she turned out to be absolutely bloody useless. And that's the problem. Because in politics, when tough decisions are being taken, you want somebody who has a bit of ruth. You know, a bit of ruthlessness. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, Boris has Ruth, Mary, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it means he has his fans, you know. Well, I, I get that, but, I mean, w when you talk about his record, I get that, um, you know, he's, a, a, in inverted commas, winner. But you look at the individuals he's beaten, Ken Livingstone and Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, it's, sort of, it's like a boxer's record that, in retrospect, doesn't look that fantastic. Now, I get that winning's important, and it's very hard to win. I don't take that away from him. But the last general election, really, it would have been very hard for a Conservative not to win that. Any Conservative. I mean, literally... Didn't feel, like, didn't feel like that where, where I was involved, up in the Peak District, in the High Peak, up in the... I mean, nothing surprised the Conservatives more than the way the Red Wall just crumbled, yeah? With majorities that were absolutely huge. 
and um, in the seat where I'm the president of the local conservatives, which means I can go to things in a posh frock, but I don't have to do any work, which is lovely. <laughs> don't <laughs> tell them that, will you? Um, but in the seat where I am, the, the majority was only... <laughs> majority was 580. Yeah. Which meant it was really hard fought, really close to the wire. Um, and there, it was an extraordinary feeling. We'd won that. By then we knew that, that we had a big majority. But the seats that went red car and, you know, Hartlepool and Mansfield, like Ashfield, epicenter of the yeah. miners' strike. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One reason, I mean, we won all the seats that we won back in Margaret Thatcher's day, and we won a lot of those seats back. And I think one of the reasons was that actually people recognised what the Tories were trying to do was give them a better future, not use them as victims, as arguments to have more government spending and all the rest of it. it and it gets complicated because a lot of it is the personal appeal of the Prime Minister. So we're in Gamesley. Now, Gamesley is in Glossop. And Glossop and Gamesley is overspill for Manchester, yeah. all right? If it isn't happening in games, it's not happening, right? <laughs> and I'm out helping and I'm door knocking. And there's Labour posters everywhere. So we knock on one door and lady, lady comes to the door and she looks at me and she goes, and I've got the gross set and she said, oh, that's Mrs. Curry, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is, all right, she said. Uh, you can put us down. She meant, she didn't mean be rude to her. She meant... I meant euthanise. Oh, right. <laughs> or whatever. She said, you can, put us, you can put us down. And I said, all oh, right, but you've got a Labour poster up there. She said, oh, Labour Party comes round here, and if you don't put poster up, they're going to put brick through window. I said, what about him over there? And I happened to know that it was the home of um, a Labour councillor. I yeah. won't say. And there's... Plastered posters, Labour posters everywhere. And she looks at him it, with, with derision and she goes, Him? Him? He's got flagpole in back garden. And it's got a flag of Cuba on it. Cuba! <laughs> I had to look it up. <laughs> and he says... This is absolutely true, not a word of a lie. He says that Cuba's wonderful. And I said, well, my daughter's been to Cuba on holiday and there's a lot of poverty there. <laughs> you can put us down, there's four of us. <laughs> but don't tell anybody, it's a secret. 
and I come back and I... Good I on said, you for keeping that secret, man. I said to Rob... <laughs> I don't, you know, I said, you want to tell them? She said, I like Boris. I like Boris. You like Boris? I like Boris, yes. I do. Now, you put us down, but don't tell anybody. And you think, what the heck's going on? I have no idea what's going on. But do you think they would still like him? Do I think that the people of Gamesley were having parties during lockdown? <laughs> but some might have been. The vast majority weren't, and they're not the Prime Minister. Well, they are people that recognise human frailty, if you like. But he, he's not frail, is he, Lawrence? He's just selfish. He just made a rule. A lot of it just doesn't work like that. I get that, but I think there is a level of public anger out there that perhaps he doesn't But appreciate. there isn't an election now. Edwina, when you're so principled, yeah. how can you allow somebody who makes the rules to turn around and uh, allow other people who are following the rules to see their family die, and he just turns around and says, oh, forgive me, forgive me. Well... <coughs> We will take audience questions at the end, and question time next week comes from Peterborough, if you would like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you'd like I'm not going to make, I am week. not making any excuse. I'm, what I'm trying to explain is what his appeal was and why we ended up winning a huge majority and a landslide in circumstances where nobody said that was going to happen. When the exit polls came out in December 2019, we were as surprised as everybody else. Not least because, if you remember, Labour and, and Corbyn had nearly won the previous one in 2017. So what part of what I regard as my job is to try and understand what's going on in other people's minds. Yeah, but uh, what's going on in other people's minds is there... I mean, it's, but I there get the isn't point, going but it to is be an election this year. There no, won't be an election until 2024. I get that, but just for the integrity of politics, were you offended at all when you saw him behaving in the way that he did? Uh, I'm not... It, as much of a fan personally of Boris as perhaps I ought to be of my leader. <laughs> but then he's not Margaret. But then bear this in mind. But Margaret wouldn't have done this, would she? She also faced a 20-point uh, 20 lead by the Labour Party against her yeah. in the middle of her time. When Heseltine walked out and created mayhem, and he was a very um, attractive alternative Prime Minister... He's still attractive now. Bit old for me. Oh, he was here a fortnight ago. My God, he looks. You talk a little bit like that, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he does. But he's look. He's still got the hair. He's still, you know. Yeah. In yeah. fact, your generation of Tories is obviously older than you. But like that era, that you know, Thatcher major government, you've all aged very well. <laughs> What's the secret? <laughs> Lots of red wine. I have, I, I don't, I can't, that's one I can't answer. I'm not even going to begin to, to answer. But just coming back to Boris, the, the, the agenda that he is setting for the Conservative Party, I think, will be a winner. Um, the guy who's apparently going to come and work for him, um, David Canzini, who's been, you know, the Iron Man, started his career with me. 
What else? Yes, as my agent back in, in South Derbyshire days. And um, I'm thrilled to bits to see what's happened. He's grown a beard and he's got older and harder and wiser and all the rest of it. But I have a feeling the moment will come. Perhaps when we have won the next election, maybe with a slightly reduced majority, but even so, when David will be given a lot of the credit and I'll be all over Twitter saying, I taught him everything he knows. Yeah. And, and, if, and if he loses, what will you say on Twitter? Oh, God help us, we've got Keir Starmer. <laughs> but do you... Um, well, firstly, on, on, on David... Uh, let me say something in favour of Keir Starmer, to yeah. be absolutely fair. I'm pleased to think that he's cleaning up the Labour Party and making it a more realistic... And hope... Why don't you had Angela... I was going to say kinder. And then No, you've got Angela Rayner, so maybe that's a bit difficult. <laughs> but um, I thought you'd it's good for politics yeah. that we haven't got somebody like Corbyn leading a main party, it seems to me, because of his blind eye for the, the wrongs and cruelties of, of the prejudices that he adopted. Let's put it like that. I thought you'd identify with Angela Rayner. Do you see a bit of yourself in, in Angela Rayner? Well, like I told you, we had a choice when we were 15. <laughs> OK. Um, let's move on. Um, so, obviously, <laughs> the problem is, every time... Some of us think, waited till later. Every time you reference sex or getting around it... You get all excited. Well, it's more that, I'm, obviously, there's a particular thing I want to ask about, and I'm trying to be tactful. No, you're not. Should I just ask it? <laughs> you may not, may or may not get an answer. Okay. Go ahead. How good was it? <laughs> do, do I look like somebody who would put up with something bad? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, when you publish the diaries that contain the revelation that you and John Major had an affair, and also I should say, and I've read your diaries and they're phenomenal, because they're so honest and they're so personal, what really comes across is, obviously the publicity around the diaries was about your relationship with John Major, but it, what comes through in the diaries is not just the kind of titillating stuff, which is what people focus on, but that was a relationship, and you were heartbroken at the end of it, and it's such a... It, it, parts of it are just such a sad story in the way you treat it and everything, so we shouldn't take that away from it either. But when you were going to publish those diaries, did you consider not including any of that stuff at all? Or was it, would it have been impossible to have to publish your story in the form that it was and not include that? Well, it's, um, it's 2001, all right? And um, it's before 9-11, the earlier part of the year. And um, it, was, it was a Monday. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm married, and I'm I'm married a wonderful, lovely man, John Jones, who died of cancer about eighteen months ago. And um, I know that he's high maintenance, and I'm not going to be writing lots more novels. But I'm talking with my um, uh, my publisher. And he's saying, well, what would you like to write? And I thought, well, maybe I should write a memoir of the Thatcher days. And he's, he said, have you, did you make any notes at the time? I said, yeah, I kept diaries. You kept diaries? Ah, can I have a look? So I handed him one. 
and he comes back immediately and he says, you have to publish these. You have to publish them just as they're written. And who's B? <coughs> the obvious question is, who's A? <laughs> A was my husband, my first husband, right? So who's B? I said, I don't think I'm going to tell anybody. He said, you have to. Who's B? And eventually I told him, and he <laughs> picked him up off the floor. He said, <laughs> oh, my God. And then we had a very serious discussion. Um, Alan is still in publishing. He's still a friend. And um, it's somebody whose judgment I trusted. What I hoped was that people would read the diaries as a record of the Margaret Thatcher years, because right, that was 1987 to 92, and that they would not be... Um, distracted by my personal stuff. But I guess you're right. When I was writing the diary, I was talking to a friend. And uh, that's how it came across. But um, Owen Turner, who did one of the reviews, said, a hundred years from now, people will be reading the diaries and saying, oh my God, that's what it was like for a woman in Parliament at that time. So um, I'm living in hope that <laughs> sometime, at some point, somebody might actually take them all seriously, who knows. But they are, they are a brilliant record of, of oh, a, a particular you. time. Thank you. They, they're, they're such an entertaining read. But they are, it's very tender because it's very easy to, for people to look from the outside at your relationship with John Major and just see it as a purely sexual thing. But it was obviously a very, there are moments in there that are really tender and romantic and very real between the two of you. That are, a moment in the bath and stuff like that, you know, you just... You have to read the book. You do have to read the book. You do have to read the book. If you're out 20 years, you have plenty of time, you do need to read it. But it is... It is uh, You've got them wondering what the heck went on in the bus. <laughs> <laughs> but there are just... There, there are kind of tender, lovely moments in there. Oh, I haven't read them for years, goodness me. Well, that was the person that you didn't see when I was on TV, bouncing around, you know, being a minister and all the rest of it. I must admit, if any of my senior civil servants had ever sent out an email inviting everybody in the office to do something illegal and I found out about it afterwards, I would have marched into that office and found some way of sacking that person. I wouldn't have taken responsibility for what they had done. Um, I'm not sure how I'd have done it. I'd have probably got hold of the most senior civil servant that I possibly could, backed him into a corner in a proper scouse way, grabbed hold of his lapels and said, get rid of that whatever. Or else I'll tell everybody, you know, I will yeah. find some other way. I, I don't know how a lady scouser might threaten people, but I would have done it somehow. <laughs> yeah. But I put on record all my civil servants were terrific, absolutely super. And we achieved a lot in those years. So, uh, so when the book comes out, there's a fuss about it. Did John Major get in touch? And have you spoken ever since? Uh, not with me, and no. <laughs> And is that, how do you feel about that? Because I, I know it was a long time ago, and obviously you've remarried since and you've moved on. But still, there's almost, I, I don't know, a sense of injustice that in some way you haven't even had a friendship since. Well, yes, I suppose that's right. But it helps to put it in context, if I may. So in um, 1997, we lost the election like big time. And a lot of that was due to some of the policies of the time. There was a, uh, John introduced a whole back to basics policy, which was all about 
um, traditional values. And that was seen as, yeah, I know, hypocrisy is what it's called, absolutely. And I'm listening to, to him making all these speeches. I was actually at the party conference as he made this speech, and I thought, you cannot, you cannot talk about family values. You cannot do that. And he did. And, um, and the briefing was that this was conservative policy to encourage traditional values in family life and so on, which of course meant immediately that all the, all the journos, all the hacks, went back through their notes and found, you know, which MP was sleeping with which, they didn't always know, of course, um, <laughs> but who was doing what and who was doing, and there was a lot of prejudice against gay MPs and they were being outed and it was, it was horrible, it was really horrible, a lot of this stuff. Um, um, Malcolm Caithness, told his wife at Sunday dinner that he had uh, been having an affair because it had been in the paper, went upstairs and shot himself. I mean, it was awful. Eleven ministers had to resign because of all this. And as a result, Tory sleaze became a term and helped to guarantee uh, that we were going to lose the next election uh, big time, which we did. And then John publishes a memoir in 1999 in which it's not his fault with me thinking, oh yes it is, oh yes it is. I lost my seat, lots of people lost their seats, we're out for a generation. And whatever you did, did not make it better. I mean, I think Tony Blair was going to win it anyway, but even so. Sooner or later, I will tell them. So when my publisher said, who's B? Little light goes on in your head. <laughs> no, wrong finger. <laughs> <laughs> so had he not done the back to basics thing, had he campaigned in a different way and not had that sort of Tory moralising tone, would you not have felt the need to tell the story or would you always have told it? I'd have probably waited till I was 80. Sooner or later I'd have told the story. It's part of history, you know? And also, in the end, Saint, I don't think saints win elections. I think human beings win elections. Hold on, Tony Blair won three. <laughs> I'm not sure his reputation has quite survived. Well, it has, it has on this side of the stage. <laughs> Shall we start talking about Iraq and dodgy dossiers, eh? Well, no. Um, <coughs> <laughs> Look, I know he wasn't perfect. I mean, this is the problem now. I'm going to sound like you defending Boris. Shall I interview him? Would that be okay? <laughs> <laughs> but that's so, I guess, in a way, because he was Prime Minister, I guess the story had to be told. If you know something that changes the perspective of history, then you have some obligation to think about whether it goes with you to your grave or not. And... Um, Given that extra twist which we've just discussed, it seemed to me that it was quite important to say, do you know what? Back to basics was a mistake. It was always a mistake. It was always a mistake because it, it was cruel to the people who didn't fit that, that, that rather narrow parameter. Um, I was standing in the European elections uh, in 1994, that year, and um, I was standing in Bevershire and Milton Keynes, Went back to Milton Keynes after the uh, party conference to get a very frosty reception. And I said, what's, what's the problem? Come on, tell me, what's the problem? 
And the chap in the bar said to me, it's all this stuff about back to basics and family values. And I said, and the problem is, he said, we're all divorced. We're all on our second or third <laughs> families. Why do you think we're in Milton Keynes? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Is Milton Keynes the, the capital of... Well, they're nice houses, but very cheap. Okay, so... Yeah. I mean, it's improved a lot since then because these lovely people actually had something going for them. <laughs> but the point is that he was, he was calling up a, a trope that was wrong. And when it was suggested in cabinet or whichever planning meeting, John, of all people, should have said, ah, 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 nobody's perfect. Yeah. Nobody's perfect. Oh, well, you know, but we all are around the table. Well, nobody is perfect. That's what he should have said. And instead he said, oh, what a good idea. We'll go with that. Nobody's perfect would have been a great slogan. <laughs> nobody's perfect. I totally agree. <laughs> I totally agree. Nobody's perfect is going to be the slogan of the yeah, next that generation. Probably is <laughs> <laughs> that probably is Boris' slogan. But we've got time for a few audience questions. So if I could ask for one-sentence questions, please, one-sentence answers. And as Edwina has uh, instructed, the first question cannot be from a man. Um, and to be fair, a man's been asking a lot of the questions. So if we could have... I don't mind what your gender is. Feel free. Okay, another Tory promise broken. So, um, an immediate U-turn. Uh, yes, the only people that can see that hand. Oh, is the, uh, there might be a woman at the back. Can you make cookies? Can you make cookies? What, right now? Can you make cookies? Can I make cookies? Uh, the reason that came to mind was um, Hillary Clinton standing for the presidency of the yeah. United States. And she's challenged about making cookies, and she should have just looked at them. And she said and said something like, "I'm a lawyer. Yeah. yeah, I can put people in jail. That's actually bigger." Yeah. You know, she she pandered to a particular view of yeah. what women are like, and it didn't do her any good at all. But can you make cookies? I can make most things. <laughs> <laughs> because people like cookies. I mean, you could be a lawyer and make cook. I mean. I cook a lot, but I'm not a baker. I would love to... Uh, I, I, I'm guessing you're a cookie fan if you've asked the question. No, it's not cookie. No, OK. People hate cookies. It's an anti-cookie crowd. I've misread the room. Uh, Ben's cookie. Have you ever had a Ben's cookie? I'm not sure. They are. This is the thing. Uh, living in London has driven me mad for cookies. I just thought they were, you know, big biscuits. But Ben's cookies... Listen, stop, stop, stop. I've just lost a stone and a half, and it was bloody hard well work, done. and I am not eating okay. cookies. Okay. How did you lose the weight? I went, to, I went to one of these, you know, slimming world type things, yeah. where you get weekly therapy surrounded with a bit of luck by much bigger people than you. <laughs> you look great. It, it works, it works. We well, do look great. I think you're right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I think everyone agrees. Um, okay. Uh, we'll take another question. Yes, to the lady there. Edwina, if you could do something differently, what would you do in your political career? That's a great question. If you could do something differently in your political career, what would it have been? I think I'd be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't dodge the question. Don't dodge the question. Don't it, dodge I'm the question. How do you know I'm dodging the question? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. We heard the answer. But would you, what, what of your political things would you have done differently? 
Oh, my. Um, you don't get to my sort of age without having some regrets about things. I think I would have tried harder. You know, when the eggs thing happened, you all know about the eggs, don't yeah. you? Right. You so, can't make a cookie without breaking a few eggs. Yeah, but you cook them, so they're safe. They're fine. They're fine. Um, when, when the eggs thing happened, and a lot of people were getting really quite sick, and we had about 500 confirmed cases a week, yeah. 30,000 cases that year. People were sick enough to go to hospital, and they were stuck in hospital for six weeks and, and more, and on kidney dialysis machines and so on. In fact, the first thing we heard about it was every kidney dialysis machine in the country was in use from somebody who got food poisoning. What on earth? And when they checked and they took samples and they found that the, it was something new, it was, you know, like coronavirus, it was something brand new that had suddenly appeared uh, in all the eggs. And I was the Minister for Public Health. I wasn't the Minister for Food. That was MAF, Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food. And when we contacted them, they said, don't talk rubbish. What? They were in denial. So you're a bit stuck. So um, I could not get my ministerial colleagues to understand what we were talking about. None of them were scientists, so they didn't understand any of the material. <laughs> and uh, what's new? And um, <laughs> so I thought, well, the best thing I could do as Minister of Public Health is warn the public, which is what I did. And the weird thing was that most of the public normally um, wouldn't believe an MP, but they believed me. So the next week, six million people didn't buy eggs, uh, and I was scrambled, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had kind of recruited a, a little coalition of friends within the House of Commons and got them to do the talking, and then it wouldn't have been me doing it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I wish I'd been more political about how I talked about what amounted to a very big problem. Yeah, but if you've got that level of people that are that ill and no one else is speaking out... Yeah, I know. And a report in 2001 vindicated you. I was vindicated very quick. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm, I'm happy about that. And, in fact, what happened was that I got approached by the egg industry who said... Big uh, egg. Yeah. <laughs> big Humpty egg. Dumpty in his face. Yeah, big egg, big egg wiener. Um, <laughs> you, you were exactly right. Um, do you think you could give us some help? Uh, we're trying to do something about this. I said, well, I'm, I'm not a biologist. I can't do that. But if you can come to me and say that there is no more contamination in any British egg, I will tell everybody. And it took them another three years. took till 2004. And they came and they said, we've, we've figured out how to do it. We vaccinate the flocks. We test everything. We test, we test, we test. And uh, that's the new lion brand that they've set up and all the rest of it. Um, and I have worked with them ever since. And I have never, I said to them, I'm not taking any money. I want to be able to say honestly that the British eggs are fine. And I've had one wooden spoon and one egg cup from them. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's so that's something I can live with. But I wish yeah. it hadn't put me out of office because I had only just, I had only just started. I had a great future ahead of me as a Secretary of State. It didn't happen. There you go. But John Major did offer you a ministerial post in 1992. Yeah, Minister of Prisons. Oh yeah, you just see me in charge. Yeah, but that would have been a rung at least above where you were at the time. I knew enough about the prisons to know the way they were set up because they they started doing a hands off. They got a sort of department of prisons. Uh, a guy called Derek Lewis in charge. 
and the Secretary of State was the Home Secretary, who was uh, at that time Michael Howard. And it looked like trouble to me. I've got two prisons in the constituency, which I used to visit. Um, remember driving up, and a guy comes out, and he says, want me to park your car? I said, uh, yeah, sure. Um, are you insured? And he said, I'm a lifer. I haven't been insured for many years. <laughs> but he parked the car. It was his job to look after it, make sure nobody else nicked it. Um, <laughs> but it meant that I knew there was trouble brewing in the prisons. And when I was offered the job, I said, I don't think I actually have the skill set to be a minister for prisons. I think that needs somebody else, maybe somebody with a, a police or a law background. Is there anything else? And John said, and he, uh, Andrew Turnbull was there at the time, the senior civil servant, and he said, well, you've been very difficult to get hold of. And I thought, that's a lie. You are actually telling me a lie. You can't do that. So he said, uh, so uh, we'd like you to be Minister of Prisons, Minister of State in the Home Office. And I said, I think I'm going to say no. And he said something priceless. He said, you can't say no. We've put out the press release. <laughs> and I wish I'd said, can I have a copy of it, please? And I never did. <laughs> and I said, no, I, I don't think I would make a good Minister of Prisons. I think there's trouble brewing in the prisons. In the back of my mind, I didn't say this, is when there's trouble, when there's going to be a riot, when prisoners are going to die, whoever the junior minister is is going to carry the can, even though there's nothing they can do about it. Right? And I would have to resign again. And I thought, no, I've got an idea for a novel. <laughs> <laughs> Arguably, well, now, uh, as well as the books that you've published, um, a friend of mine brought this along today, and you very kindly signed it for him. Uh, Marxism Today, this was from March 1987. Marxism Today, the front page, Edwina Curry exclusive interview. I mean, why do you think... I mean, they obviously thought that was going to sell more copies of Marxism Today. And I'm sure they did, by the way. I didn't mean that as, a, as an insult. Why were Marxism Today so keen to talk to you, do you think? Well, the, uh, the reporter there, the interviewer, is B. Campbell. Campbell, who is still a pal. Uh, Beatrix Campbell, she's called on there. And uh, she said to me, I'd like to do an interview with you. And I said, fine, okay. Um, where? I was thinking it might be, I don't know, Sunday Times or something. And she said, Marxism Today. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh, you know, uh, and I've never asked for um, editorial control or anything like that. It seemed to me it was a good way of getting some messages across. And you never know who's reading it. Well, here we are, uh, 25 years later. No, it's more than that, 35 years later. I'm stupid, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Went to school under a Tory government, didn't I? <laughs> now, um, it's too, ma it's too, many, too, too many cookies rot the bread. <laughs> I had eggs for breakfast every year of the 1980s. <laughs> never did me any harm. Right. I'm going to read out some questions, and let's see if you answer them in the same way. I'm just going to pick one at random that I've not been pointed towards. Oh, here we go. Some of your colleagues call you iron tits. <laughs> That's specific to you being a woman. Do you know what you said to that? Probably yes. You said, it doesn't worry me. Do you remember being called iron tits? No. Well, what does it mean? I think it, it, it's... If, if it's true, and I really don't hey, remember... Hey, it's in Marxism today. No. 
I mean, I'm sure it's in Marxism, <laughs> but if it, if, if it was true in any way, um, what he says is, this woman is not a feminine woman. This woman is not conf uh, uh, really uh, conforming to the way that we see women. Bearing in mind, 1975 was the first year, the earliest, where more than half of women with children were working at all. And, you know, we were very recently stuck in the kitchen and expected to, um, you know, look after men and all that sort of uh, very old-fashioned stuff, you know. There's another bit so. here where... Uh, and these are Beatrix Campbell's questions, so this ain't on me. Um, <laughs> she says, you belong to a generation of women who wouldn't see sex as a sin. And you say, yes, I think that's right. And then she says, the tone of your engagement with all this, the sexual agenda... And then the question clearly tails off. And do, do you remember, can you guess what you then add to this conversation? I'm not entirely sure, but I know at the time we were um, starting to argue for um, cervical cancer screening. Is it to do with that? Not quite. You say, um, <laughs> do you mean sex is fun? Is that it's there to be enjoyed? I think that's right. I've always felt I was part of a fortunate generation. I've talked about it with my mother. She said exactly the same to me. You're very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I got oh. the, the one of the things I have kept, I'm not sure if I've still got a copy of that, but I found the other day, um, from the Evening Standard, you remember when they used to sell the Evening Standard and there would be billboards with the headlines on, all right? And I had been asked um, whether there was anything that could be done to avoid cervical cancer. Now, we know now that the best thing to do is for people to have a, a vaccination against it, which is great. It's beginning to disappear from younger generations. But there was no such thing then. And um, we also knew that nuns didn't get it, by and large. And that... Um, you know what? <laughs> My mum was a nun. No, she wasn't. She was. By she definition, was. she wasn't. <laughs> She was, well, she, she was. By definition, she, well, she was a naughty nun in that case, if you're a <laughs> <laughs> She was, well, she, she's. So she's let, me tell the, let me tell the story. Yeah, okay. <laughs> what, my mum? I will answer your question in my own way. Um, so so we, we knew a bit about it, it's, it's what causes it and what links to it and all the rest of it. So I'm asked on a TV programme, uh, is there any advice that you would give to young women so they don't catch cervical cancer? And I said, uh, yeah, that's easy. Don't smoke and don't screw around. <laughs> so that's a headline. But it, it's true. It was, and part of me, the scouse part of me, couldn't figure out why anybody got cross with that. Because A, it's true. And B, it was easy to understand and to get across. But it does sound judgmental. It wasn't judgmental. It was, you want advice how not to get cervical cancer, don't smoke, and don't screw around. So, coming back to my mum. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was some years before we could actually talk about condoms on TV and radio. Yes. And, and but we did. When the, when the whole HIV AIDS stuff, I was on that uh, working party that produced memorable advertising campaign. I was hoping, by the way, this was going to sort of end it on a light note. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm on that. And uh, there's Norman Fowler as the Secretary of State and Tony Newton is the number two and I'm number three. And we're all sent out to go and spread the message. 
which is about safe sex, which nobody had talked about ever in this entire universe before then. And then Norman suddenly at the door turns and he says to me, Edwina, no jokes. <laughs> so I then had to go out and talk about condoms yeah. and, and safe sex and Shut try not to middle. laugh at the <laughs> But how did you do it? Because, I mean, it, it, sometimes joking can help these sort of things. It's awkward talking about sex publicly. It's awkward as a government, certainly at that time, talking about sex publicly. I mean, was it possible to do it without jokes? Well, it, was, it became possible to do it, uh, and that in itself was a big help. Um, Norman came back from one of the cabinet min uh, meetings where this whole programme, we put 23 million leaflets through everybody's door. You know, we took it all very seriously. There was no cure for AIDS. If you, if you see the TV series, It's a Sin, that conveys exactly the terror and the uh, angst of the times. Brilliant, brilliant TV series. Um, but we were determined we were going to have a campaign. And um, Norman came back from the cabinet meeting and he said, well, boys and girls, we are good to go with the campaign. And the Prime Minister has said she doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And we all went, yes! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so one last question, uh, and, uh, oh yes, the gentleman right in the middle there. Yeah, in reference to Angela Rayner before, what was your issue with Angela Rayner being an underage mother? What was your issue with Angela Rayner being an underage mother? Sorry, ask again. What was your issue with Angela Rayner being, I was trying to end on a light What note. was the issue <laughs> of Angela Rayner being an underage mother? Uh, to each his own. But I tell you what, if I'd been an underage mother, I wouldn't be sitting on this platform now. Why? Because of the time in which you Because lived. the opportunity to do something different, the opportunity to get an education, the opportunity to have the opportunity to widen all my choices was a very narrow gap. In it, was, it was as tiny as anything, because hardly anybody went to university Hardly any 18-year-olds. I think about one in 10 18-year-olds went to university at that time. And most of them were down south. And most of them went to private schools. And I didn't tick any of those boxes. And nearly all of them were blokes. Yeah. And that meant if I wanted to get an education and have a chance to compete in any way, I had to make sure I got my O-levels and my A-levels. But thank God, when Angela Rayner was going to school, that she could be a mum and get on in life. That surely is... Well, that's because desirable. the opportunities uh, are much wider than they were, and you can thank lots of governments since then. You can also thank... I mean, it's an expensive business. And the dilemma that we face now is we've both got half the 18-year-olds going to college and then staying on for master's degrees in media studies. God uh -oh. save us. Everybody, <laughs> thinks, everybody thinks we're going to end up in the media. <laughs> not in the Peak District, they're not. <laughs> Well, okay, well, <laughs> trying to end on a, on a positive, upbeat, start slagging everyone off. Right, there's a question down here, and by the look of you, say so you look like this is going to be a good, light-hearted thing that's going to unify the room at the end. No pressure. What was the Neil Kinnock story? What was, what the, was the Neil Kinnock story? Yes! Oh, mate! Oh, if I could give you this signed copy of Marxism today, I would, but it doesn't belong to me. It's probably worth quite a lot of money. I looked up the other day on Amazon to see if I could buy some back copies of my books. <coughs> yeah. A hardback first edition with this dust jacket of my first novel 
is on offer for a hundred quid. I wish I kept more of them. <laughs> so, um, so Neil Kinnock. 1994, 1993, 1994, we are determined that we're going to try and change the law about gay age of consent. There was huge discrimination against gays. And one of the key bits of discrimination was that if you were a 16-year-old bloke and you fancied women, you could get married, you could shag who you liked. And people did. Um, but if you were a 16-year-old and you fancied a bloke, you could put that bloke in jail and you could probably find yourself, you could find yourself in all sorts of trouble. And this was wrong. This was wrong. There was no such law for, uh, for lesbians because Queen Victoria didn't believe it was a possibility. But that's a different story. So there we have an active piece of discrimination and we decided that one of the things we were going to try and do was remove that and we would have, then we would have the debate and we could frame it within the conservative idea that you do what you like as long as you're not hurting anybody and we could also frame it within the Labour idea of we all believe in equality, all right? And we were going to put it down as an amendment to criminal justice bill that was going through Parliament at the time. And it fell to me to be the leader of this. It was an accident. I happened to be the most senior Tory around that was free to do it and willing to do it. And I said, it's got to be an all-party amendment. This has got to be something that comes from everywhere and it's got to be a free vote. Okay? And they said, uh, well, who do you want as your seconder? And I said, I want the recently retired leader of the Labour Party. I want Neil Kinnock. And they said, he won't. And I said, why won't he? Well, he's from South Wales. He's from the Valleys. And he's got two sons, teenage sons. Of course he won't do it. I said, ask him. Said, You're going to have to ask him. Right, okay. So we need to do this away from prying eyes. This is Edwina and Neil, yeah? So oh, we God, did. is this another revelation? <laughs> <laughs> so we went to St. Ermin's Hotel, which is at the back of St. James's uh, tube station. Very nice <laughs> hotel, a nice little team. Oh, I know it, the Jolly St. Ermin's. Jolly St. Ermin's. Well, and we had not cookies, but we had rock cakes. And I lectured Neil Kinnock on equality. And I said to him, this is exactly why you should back this. You believe in equality. It has to be more than a principle. When, it comes, when push comes to shove, you have to be prepared to stand up and argue that the law has to be changed in order to produce equality for thousands, millions of our fellow citizens. And we got through a lot of rock cakes and then we went back to the House of Commons with him looking very thoughtful. And bless him, he did it. And he stood up and he made a wonderful speech, you can read it in Hansard, on exactly those terms. Why somebody from South Wales, from a very macho society with sons, believed that we should not discriminate. Um, we nearly got there. The first vote was 16, that it should come down to 16, and we missed it by 52 votes. And then the second vote was on 18, and we won it with a huge majority, 200-something. And from there onwards, it was only a matter of time. It wasn't a question of whether gay men would have equality and everybody else. It was just a question of when. Uh, and that is one of the things I am proudest of. And that's why I wanted to tell you about Neil Kinnock and Rock Cakes. There you go. Okay. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, 
but why rock cakes? Is that what they served, or did you? Are they? Yeah. Are they? Well, well, you say Welsh in front of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know, but that, that was when you look at the menu and you're trying, you both know you're going to have a, a, a very difficult conversation about something really important. Yeah. We had rock cakes. Well, I guess the kind of Wales has sort of coal mines. And but, things. but absolute credit to him because it took a... Yeah. Cool. I'm, I'm quite sure at home, Glenys is saying to him, of course you can, don't be silly. But he was, deep down here, it hurt him. Well, because he was full of rock cakes. <laughs> <laughs> he had indigestion. Edwina, this has been phenomenal. Ladies and gentlemen, before we thank Edwina, please, uh, a huge round of applause. Thank everyone who works here at the Duchess yeah. Theatre and at Avalon, who's made tonight possible. Thank you all for coming. My guest in two weeks' time is Neil Kinnock. So I shall provide him with rock cakes. <laughs> <laughs> Welsh rock cakes, absolutely, and, and I hope that he gets the reference. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being such a wonderful audience, but please, a huge thank you to Edwina Curry. <laughs>Well, there you go, Edwina Curry. Uh, what an incredible individual. And you really get a sense of that drive she has, not just for herself, but for the things that she cares about. And obviously expresses herself in very direct, forthright, but also very warm ways. And um, I could have spoken to her for so much longer. And her diaries really are brilliant. And they do, I mean, as you would imagine, I guess it's obvious, but you get way more of a sense of the emotion of things. It's a, such a phenomenal personal account of being a politician at that time, being a female politician and being a conservative at that time. They really are fantastic historical record with the added benefit of being very funny and, of course, at times, uh, scandalous. But what a fantastic guest. My next guest at the political party is Neil Kinnock. I cannot wait. That's on the 7th of March. And as I intimated at the start, some very special guests about to be confirmed. So go to mattford.com to buy tickets for all future political party podcasts and all my future tour dates, which include a load more cities that I've forgotten again. But off the top of my head, Salford, uh, Chorley, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Nottingham, Norwich. <laughs> These are sort of partly alliterative. And Corby, Birmingham, uh, where else? Stafford, Newcastle, Hexham, Annick, Maidstone, Cambridge, two nights in Edinburgh, Glasgow, two nights in Brighton, Leicester, Northampton, Bath, Eastleigh. Cardiff, Camberley, Peterborough, Maidenhead, the London Bloomsbury Theatre, Bristol, always brilliant, Leamington, Shrewsbury, Nottingham, Gloucester, York, Leeds, Canterbury, Exeter. I mean, there's just so many. I can't read them all out. I'm basically everywhere. So if you think I'm going to be near you, you're right. Go to my website, mattford.com, and I'll see you there. And you can get tickets for all future political parties and tour shows at mattford.com slash live. Um, please do share this podcast. Leave a review, leave a written review, and it just helps it spread the word. Obviously, the Angela Rayner podcast from a month ago. Um got some traction uh, about a month later, which was interesting. So who knows at what point in the future the interview you just listened to will be claimed as an exclusive uh, by a British newspaper. Um, so please spread the word far and wide. Tell all your mates and I'll see you next time. Ta-ra.